0: We're reading from Exodus, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance, to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you as nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you?
1: Afternoon everybody, good to see you here at the EU public meeting, glad you could join us today as we start, what well, I hope it's going to be a very exciting adventure in the book of Exodus. Now a little bit of a quiz as we start off today. First of all, geography. Who's ever been to or even heard of Wiseman's Ferry on the northwestern... Alca- okay, great, fantastic. It's a great little spot, uh, The reason it's called Wiseman's Ferry is because when you go out there and you want to cross the Hawkesbury River at that particular point with your car, you can't. There's no bridge. You have to get on a ferry and go across. And it's called Wiseman's Ferry because the very first ferryman there was a guy by the name of Solomon Wiseman. Okay. second question. Second question. uh, We've done geography. Literary. Literary. Who's heard of Kate Grenville? Oh, now this is a little bit sad. Kate Grenville. Kate Grenville is a contemporary Australian author, multi-award winning, around the world. She's won the Orange Prize. You don't know about the Orange Prize? Some do, okay. It's like the top literary award award in England. Anyway, she's Australian, contemporary writing. What's the link between Kate Grenville and Wiseman Ferry? Well, the answer is this book. Um, I've been reading this book by Kate Grenville. She's a fiction writer, but this is a a non-fiction work of hers. And it's about her personal search for her great-great-great-grandfather. Her great-great-great-grandfather was none other than Solomon Wiseman, after whom Wiseman's ferry is named. She tries to find out about him. Now uh, some people like Kate Gremble are driven by a real desire to understand their roots. And they think enormous amounts of energy researching their personal history. Why do they do that? Well, to know your own story is a very powerful thing. To know your family's history, to have a sense of from where and from whom you come, helps you understand who you are. And interestingly, Kate Grenville's search for the truth about her ancestor literally takes her around the world. And it certainly makes her a very interesting read. But as interesting as it is, this book, is not my story. This is her family, her history, It's certainly not mine and I doubt it's yours. But say for a moment, just say for a moment, that by some unexpected turn of events, you found yourself adopted into Kate Grenville's family. Say suddenly you were adopted into her family, then this book will take on new significance for you. Because suddenly, by adoption, this becomes your family story, your history. It's the history that shapes your family, which invariably will shape you. It's no longer just an interesting story, it's suddenly personal. The reason I'm talking to you about this is because something like that, I think, is at work when we come to read the book of Exodus in the Christian Old Testament. Let me explain to you, by natural birth... Exodus is not my story. Exodus is the story of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people under the Old Covenant. Exodus is really a story of three R's, not reading, writing and arithmetic, but rescue, revelation and relationship. Let me explain that. Exodus is the account of the rescue of the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt by this one true God more than 3,000 years ago. It's the story of... This God revealing himself and his character to them at Mount Sinai. And it's a story of the relationship that he establishes with them through the covenant or the binding agreement. But see, by natural birth, I'm not a Jew and I guess most of you aren't either. So Exodus is not our story. It's not our history, it's theirs. It might be interesting and without doubt we will certainly learn some useful things from it if we take time to read it. But by natural birth, it is just not my story. But here's the thing. By natural birth, it's not my story. But as a Christian, by spiritual rebirth through faith in the Lord Jesus, I've been adopted into God's family. Everyone from anywhere who's put their faith in the Lord Jesus has been adopted into God's people. Grafted in, the Bible talks about it that way. And so suddenly this exodus history, the history of God's people, has become, by adoption, my family history. Just like Kate Grenville's book would be part of my family history if I were to be adopted into her family. So as Christians, as God's people under the new covenant, when we read exodus, we are reading our story, our family story, our adopted family history. What's that going to mean for you? Well, what it means is as we read Exodus, it's not just interesting, it is personal. Here's the early history of our family, God's family, of which you're a part if you're a Christian. And the early history of our family is not irrelevant to your life now. In particular, above all else, as we look at this book of Exodus, what's going to come into sharp relief is that we will understand the relationship that defines us that defines us and binds us together, we will come to understand the relationship we have with the one true God. So I might just say at the beginning of this year, as we're sort of going to look at the book of Exodus, if you haven't read this book, then maybe you should. Whether you're a Christian or not, it would do a lot of good for your soul to read through the book of Exodus as we go through it in the EU public meetings. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible in a modern, easy-to-read translation, please come and speak to us at the afternoon tea table and we'll make sure we get you one. But particularly if you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus, why don't you take this opportunity this year to get familiar with this defining and illuminating moment in our adopted family history. It will help you get to know this one true God who's adopted you, by grace, into his family. And it'll help you understand what it means to be part of his family. Well, how are we going to tackle the book of Exodus? uh, This week and the next two weeks, we're going to look at Exodus chapters 1 to 6. Then in the final few weeks of the semester, we're going to come back to Exodus and we'll look at chapters 7 to 18. And the rest of the book we'll tackle in the second half of the year, again in two bites. Well, that's enough introduction. I hope I've at least whetted your appetite for getting stuck into this part of God's Word and getting ready to hear what God has to say to us in it why don't I now pray and commit what I hope is going to be an exciting exploration uh, to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in these words in the Bible. And we thank you in particular for this book of Exodus. And we pray that as we read it together this year, that you might indeed speak to us and teach us more about yourself and more about ourselves so that we might live for you. Amen. Okay, first of all, finding our bearings. Anyone brought along their Hebrew Old Testament today? No one. Yes, the Semitic studies is very popular in this university, as you can see. Not many Hebrew Old Testaments around today. Let me just say, if you had your Hebrew Old Testament here and you tried to open to a book called Exodus, you won't find one. The second book of the Hebrew Old Testament is not called Exodus. It's called, and these are the names and these are the names. Now, look down, if you've got your English copy of Exodus there, look down the very first couple of words of the book of Exodus. How does it start? These are the names. That is, the book of Exodus in the Hebrew Old Testament was just known by its first couple of words. But most of our English Bible translators don't like starting a sentence, let alone a whole book, with the word and... So they drop it out. So it's just, these are the names. Mind you, that little word, and, does tell you something. And these are the names. What that tells you straight away is that this book is a continuation. It's a sequel. It's coming after something else. In particular, it's coming after the book of Genesis. It's a continuation of the Genesis story. Now, we don't have time to go right back through the Genesis story. So what we sort of really need now is someone to come along and do one of those voiceovers, you know, previously on Facebook, blah, blah, blah. But we don't really have someone here to do that, so I'm going to try to just do a previously in the book of Genesis in about 30 seconds. So, you ready? Here we go. Previously, in the book of Genesis, we had creation. In the beginning, God created everything that there is and it was all very good. But then, corruption. God's good creation was corrupted by humanity's rejection of God, rejection of God's purposes, rejection of God's authority. But then, covenant. God takes the initiative to restore his creation through establishing a covenant, an agreement with one particular man, Abram or Abraham. And he promises to make Abram a great nation, to give him a land for his own people and then through him to bless all the nations of the earth. That's the covenant. But then the book ends with confusion. As the book of Genesis unfolds, the promises of God seem under threat on numerous times, and as the book ends, Abraham's descendants are hardly a great nation. They number in total 70 people. That's less people than we have in this room today. That's how big the nation was. Really not a nation at all. A collection of 70 wandering shepherds. What's more, at the end of the book of Genesis, they're forced out of the promised land and they end up in Egypt because of a famine. And that's how we come to the beginning of the book of Exodus. So let's move on to start looking at this Exodus chapters 1 and 2. I want to suggest to you today that Exodus chapters 1 and 2 maps out for us what I've called a jagged decline a jagged or a jagged descent. What we see as we go through these chapters is the situation keeps getting worse for these people, these Israelites in Egypt. Every now and then there's a bump and something good seems to happen and then it goes down again. Then there's a bump and it seems good and then it goes down again. As we trace through these opening chapters, I hope now that you'll be able to see that. Let's have a look there in verse 6. What do you read there in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6? Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and that whole generation. So here's God's people, got all these great promises from God, the covenant, they're stuck in Egypt, and they die there. They don't get to go back to the promised land in their lifetime. They die there. So that's a bad thing. They die in Egypt. But then know what we're told in verse 7. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now the language used there is quite significant. What was the promise that God had made to Abraham, say from Genesis 22? This is what God said in Genesis 22, verse 17. I'll read it out to you. I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, And what do we read about here in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7? The people are increasing. They're becoming more numerous. That is, God is being faithful to his promises to Abraham here. He he is turning his descendants into a great nation. But more than that, the wording of Exodus 1 verse 7 goes back all the way to God's original purposes for all of humankind, back in Genesis chapter 1 of the creation of humanity. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 1 verse 27-28. So, God created humankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And this is the key bit. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Did you notice the same language is being used there in Genesis as in Exodus 1 verse 7? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, or lamb, it's the same word in Hebrew. So, what we see here is that God's original purposes for humanity, corrupted though they were, through human sin, they're being recaptured by God in his promises to bless Abraham and his descendants. And here in the Exodus, despite the fact that the first generation there died, God is multiplying the people. He is keeping his promises to Abraham. God's original purposes for creation are actually being worked out here through these Abraham descendants. Okay, well let's keep travelling along in the narrative. What happens next? Verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies, and fight against us, and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labour. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. Another downturn. Now the Israelites are not just in Egypt, but they're enslaved in Egypt. That's going to make sure getting back to the promised land pretty difficult if you're there in slavery. But then verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So Pharaoh's first attempt to oppose God and God's people fails. They just keep increasing. In fact, the more he oppresses, the more they increase. And as we go on in this Exodus account, we'll realise that Pharaoh proves to be a pretty slow learner when it comes to opposing the plans of God. You do so at your peril, but we'll see more of that in the coming weeks. Well, Pharaoh then, given that his first plan didn't work, comes up with a second plan. If slavery isn't going to stop them uh, increasing, Maybe some secret treachery will. Verse fifteen to sixteen. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, the other Puah, "When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live." Now this is a very effective genocide plan, because if you kill off all the boys and just left with the girls, then the girls will either have to intermarry with the Egyptians, and so the Israelite race ceases to exist, or they just die childless, in which case the Israelite nation ceases to exist. It's a very effective genocidal plan. Moreover, the midwives were in a position of real power at the moment of birth. They could carry out this plan secretly without too much difficulty. He's not such a nice bloke, this pharaoh. So surely the plan to kill the boys, that's going to threaten God's promises. Well, no. If you read on in verses 17 to 21, Pharaoh's plan fails because these two midwives fear God. And they fear God more than Pharaoh. And we read that God's people keep on increasing. And just to throw some more fruitfulness into the basket, the midwives are granted families of their own as well. There's families families for everybody. But then Pharaoh isn't finished yet. If he can't achieve his plan by secrecy, then he'll do it in public. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. So if the midwife can't or won't help him, then let's just get everybody on board. A public, what's called a pogrom, a public campaign of extermination. How can God's people survive that sort of all-out, nation-on-nation, let's just kill all their boys. How will God's people survive that? And that's where chapter 1 ends, with this public extermination campaign. When you hit chapter 2, it's like the zoom lens kicks in and suddenly we focus down on one particular man who's unnamed, a Levite, an Israelite, who marries an unnamed Levite woman and then she falls pregnant. Now normally a pregnancy would be a, a time of great celebration but I guess if you were living in that situation with Pharaoh's geno- genocidal edict in force, a pregnancy could be a pretty scary thing. What happens if you had a boy? Who is going to throw him in the river? Well, you read in uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 2, she gave birth to a son. What a tragedy. But then this unnamed Levi woman decides to take some action. We read there that she hides him for three months. And then we read it gets too difficult to hide him. I've actually, as it happens, I have a three-month-old child at the moment. And I can't imagine how you would hide a three-month-old child. Uh, There's the crying... And there's also, they start babbling and talking, which is beautiful, but, you know, it's noisy. Um, and there's the flapping of the limbs and the sort of losing sch- of the limbs. And, you know, there's all this sort of... Okay, you don't know what that was, but okay, I do. Um, there's all this sort of stuff. It'd be very difficult to hold a three-month-old child. So what do you do at that point? Well, we agree that what happened is that she constructs a waterproof basket for him and places him in the basket along the reeds on the edge of the Nile River. Now, was this a deliberate part of a plan that she had? We're not told. Was it actually just desperation? I I don't know what else to do. We don't know. We know that uh, she stations his older sister alongside just to see what happens to him. But what happens next is very unexpected. This baby boy is discovered by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. Now that must have been a terrifying prospect. Pharaoh's own daughter knows the Egypt. How easy for her to say, open the basket. A Hebrew boy, throw it in the river. We're right here. How easy would that have been? But then what happens is so unexpected. She hears the boy cry. And she had pity on him and then decides that she will adopt this boy as her own. And what's more, because of the quick thinking of the sister, then she employs the boy's mother, employs, pays the boy's mother to look after him for her. So suddenly, this boy who should be dead has been adopted by the Egyptian royal family. And so we read in verse 10, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I threw him out of the water. What a turn up of events. In the midst of Pharaoh's genocidal campaign, one Hebrew boy is saved by Pharaoh's own daughter, not just saved, but brought up, brought up in the Egyptian royal family. Here is an Israelite in an astounding position of influence. You must think at this point, surely this is the one that God could use to end the oppression of his people. And indeed, that seems like what's meant to happen. In the next couple of verses, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, we read about a time when Moses has grown up and he goes out from the palace and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. How symbolic is that of their whole situation? The Israelites oppressed by the Egyptians. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And looking this way, at that, and seeing no one's around, he kills the Egyptian. Here is the deliverer. Here is the one who can rescue the the, the Hebrews from the Egyptians. But then once again it seems that Pharaoh gets in the way. When you read on in verses 13 and 15, Moses' killing of the Egyptian becomes no. And Pharaoh tries to kill Moses. And so Moses has to flee the country. He has to go, we read there, to Midian. So here's yet another downturn. The potential rescuer, The Israelite, who actually had influence, he's forced to flee the whole country. He's cut off from his own people. We read there at the end of chapter 2, he he does find a wife in Midian and he has a family, but it's not all that good. Verse 22, he names his son Gershom. Now, that's weird, but it's weirder when you know it means an alien there. Now, I take it it wasn't they looked and went, ugh, an alien there when he was born. But actually, you know, he's saying that's because I'm an alien in a foreign country. That's my situation, says Moses. And names his son, Gershom, an alien man. Well, that's surely about as low as it could get. That's the end of those sort of two chapters. Israelites oppressed in terrible slavery. Moses, the one who might be in a position to do something, he's in exile in Midian. But then comes the closing note. At the end of chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And this really is the climax of these two chapters. We read there, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of their slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. And here comes the good thing. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. There's a fantastic upturn at the end of these chapters. The wonderful verses at the end, which talk about the character of the one true God and how He responds to His people. The God is not deaf to His people's cries. He hears their groaning and their cries for help. He's not blind to their condition. He looks upon them, and having looked upon them, He's not immune to their suffering. he does, He's not cold-hearted towards them. We're told there that he takes notice of them, or as one person put it, he looks with kindness upon them, he, he cares for them, take, keeps them in mind. And most important of all, I think, the linchpin of these whole first two chapters, God doesn't forget his promises. He remembers his covenant that he makes with his people. Now, it's just worth noting here, it's not as though God had forgotten his covenant, God doesn't forget the promises he's made. In fact, if there's one thing the jagged descent teaches us is that all the way through God has been keeping his promises. We keep seeing all the time God's people multiplying and increasing. God is fulfilling his promises. What does it mean then here at the end of chapter 2 when we read, now God remembers his covenant? I take it that means God has remembered, God knows it and now he's going to do something about it. We should expect God now to take action to rectify this situation with his people oppressed in Egypt, with the Deliverer stuck in Midian. How's he going to do, what's he going to do here? He's going to do something now. Well, you'll have to come back next week when we get to chapters 3 and 4 to see what God's plan is. Well, given all that in chapters 1 and 2, I want to ask, what does it actually mean for us? What does it mean? What ought we to take away from this part of our family history, our adopted family history? Now, we could sit around here and dream up all sorts of interpretations and meanings of these events into our own life now. But rather than do that, it's probably more instructive for us to actually find other parts of the Bible that reflect on Exodus 1 and 2 and see what it has to say about it. And in fact, there's three key passages in the New Testament that reflect on Exodus 1 and 2. Three passages are Matthew 2, Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. Matthew 2, Acts 7, Hebrews 11. I've only got time to reflect briefly on two of them. So you'll have to go and look at Acts 7 yourself later. But first of all, let's just reflect briefly here. Matthew 2. You'll see there the point I've written up there. A Saviour born amongst God's people in exile. Let me explain that. Matthew 2 is part of the birth accounts of Jesus Christ. And there are remarkable similarities between the events surrounding Moses' birth and that of Jesus. Remember, Pharaoh had two attempts to try to wipe out the Israelite boys, first in secret and then publicly. Well, when Jesus was born, King Herod tries to destroy him twice. First secretly through the, the so-called Magi, the so-called wise men who come from the east. They say, where's this the one who's been born King of the Jews? And King Herod goes, hang on, King of the Jews? Ain't that me? Why don't you go and find him? And when you find him, come back and tell me. So, tell me where he is so I might go and worship him. Yeah, right, worship him. Herod, um, Herod's plan is completely clear. He wants to do away with this challenger to the throne. So, first of all, he has a secret plan. But then his secret plan, plan fails. So, then he has a public plan. What does Pharaoh do in Matthew 2? Well, we read there that he orders the public killing of all the boy babies in and around Bethlehem who are two years old and under. Familiar? What's more, Matthew makes clear in that chapter that Jesus, too, is born as a saviour to God's people when they are in exile. Remember, Moses born to the Israelites when they're in Egypt, outside of the promised land. Matthew says, Jesus born to the Israelites when they're in exile. You say, hang on, they're not in exile. They're in Israel. How are they in exile? Well, actually, if you look at all the promises of God, had all those promises of God come true? No. Well, they were in the promised land, but they were under Roman rule. That wasn't how it was meant to be in effect, God's people still were in exile. And Matthew tries to make that clear in chapter 2. And that's where it starts to hit the road for us. As God's new covenant people. As those who've been adopted into his family. Because friends, you may not realise it, but we are still in exile. We're still waiting to see the fulfilment of all of God's promises. Isn't that true? Is life as it ought to be for anyone in this room today? It's not for anyone in all of creation. Sin still assaults us. Death still reigns. We still endure broken relationships and loneliness. We battle with sickness, mental illness. We war with one another as individuals, within families, but also as nations. We long for the fullness of joy, of peace. Now the great good news from God and his word is that we do have a saviour who will rescue us from this. That is Jesus Christ the Lord. And indeed our final deliverance from all of these ills is assured the Bible says because Jesus won the decisive victory at his death and his resurrection. But we won't experience the fulfilment of all of those promises of God in our own lives, in our experience until Christ returns and we enter that new creation. So yes, the victory has been won, yes, deliverance is assured, but we still wait to experience it in its fullness. That's why the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 talks of God's people as aliens and strangers in the world. We're still in exile. Yes, we have a Saviour, but we're still outside the Promised Land. Well, what are we then to do in the meantime as God's people? Well, that brings us to the second New Testament passage that reflects on Exodus uh, 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, you'll know that it's a list of the great heroes of biblical faith. Uh, In that list, there's two characters who appear from Exodus 1 and 2. Now, without looking it up, I wonder if you could guess who they might be. Who are the great characters of faith? I, think, I sort of think, well, those midwives did pretty good. Pharaoh there, sort of, you know, saying, kill all the boys, and they going, actually, no, we won't do that because we fear God more than you. I'd, I'd pick the midwives. But no, the, the two people who picked out, first of all, is Moses' parents. Moses' parents are singled out in Hebrews 11. As great examples of faith, because they weren't afraid of Pharaoh's edict. And so they hid Moses for three months when they saw that he was, quote, no ordinary child. So they're singled out for not fearing, for not fearing the pressure and the threats of the world. Secondly, Moses himself is is, uh, singled out as an example of faith for refusing to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and instead identifying with God's people. In particular, it says there in Hebrews 11 that Moses turned his back on all the treasures of Egypt. He turned his back on the pleasures of sin, it says, for the sake of the reward that was promised to God's people, for the sake of the promises, to see them fulfilled. So he turned his back on the pleasures of sin for the sake of the reward, even though that meant him being ill-treated alongside them. Now, the consistent element to the faith which ought to characterise God's people, I take it from that chapter of Hebrews, is that we trust God's promises, even when you don't see them being fulfilled in the moment. It's related to what the Bible calls hope, that confidence that God will keep his promises, that then works itself out in day-to-day decisions, that yes, I will trust that he keep his promises, yes, I will trust that he keeps his promises. So how do we, as exiles, as aliens and strangers, how do we wait for God to fulfil his promises? What are we meant to do? Well, we're called to live lives of faith. So let's reflect for a moment then on Moses' parents and Moses himself. Like Moses' parents, I take it, we're not to give way to fear. That's what it means to live as an alien and stranger now with real faith in the one True God. Don't give way to fear. It's very easy to give way to fear. What if my family is not Christian and they threaten to cut me off if I choose to follow Christ and put my faith in Him? That's a pretty scary prospect. It'd be easy to give way to fear there. What if I went overseas as a missionary and my kids had to go to boarding school? What would happen to them? That can't be right. I couldn't do that. Or what would happen, for that for that matter, if I moved to an undesirable suburb within Sydney for the sake of Christian ministry? What would happen to my kids then? What schools would they go to? What if all my friends are coupling up or getting married and I can't find a decent Christian to love me? You know, there is this non-believer who's really nice and supportive and I don't want to get left on the shelf. And I take it that we're to take our leave from Moses' parents here. Don't give way to pressure that's brought to bear. Put your faith in God and his promises. Don't give way to fear. Now that won't always be easy. But remember, God remembers his covenant promises. He won't let you down. What about Moses himself there? Well, I take it like Moses, we're to keep our focus on God's promises. We're not to turn aside to the lures of the world. See, the world offers you everything. You can have wealth if only you invest wisely or choose this particular super fund or just work a bit harder to get that promotion. In fact, you can protect yourself against all the ills of this world by investing your money in insurance or tying it up in investments. You can have popularity and love if only you wear these clothes, use these products, lose five kilos and have a few small operations. You can have it all, when in reality it's only in living a life of faith in God's promises that you will find real fulfilment and lasting joy. Well, the God of promise when life sucks. Only someone I think who's led an incredibly sheltered and short and self-focused life could ever say, this life is as good as I could possibly want. You have to have lived a very sheltered, short or self-focused life to think that. You can't say that with your eyes open to the world of Darfur in the Sudan or to the number of divorce cases in our courts or youth suicide rates in the country or depression in our society. You just can't say this is, who'd want it to get any better than this? Much of life plainly sucks. The good news from God is that we do have a Saviour, Jesus Christ who has secured the decisive deliverance. And we have God's promises to make all things new when Christ returns. But the challenge for us is to live this life of faith in the God of promise until we see those promises fulfilled. So the writer to the Hebrews puts it elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 6. So we have this hope of God's promises being fulfilled as an anchor For the soul, firm and secure. That's how God's promises are to function in our life as people of faith. An anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And so therefore we need to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your very great and precious promises fulfilled for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and in all that he brings. Our Father, we look forward to the day when he returns and all those promises that you have made will be fulfilled in our experience. We pray that you would strengthen us to stay faithful until that day against the lures of the world and against the temptations to fear. In Jesus' name.